Amen. Well, it's good to be with you again this morning. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, and we'll be in Isaiah 62 together, and we'll read uh, the whole chapter, Isaiah 62. So would you stand this morning for the reading of God's word? As you do that, a few, a few notes on this, this passage. We've been finishing up our series on Isaiah, and we're nearing the end a few weeks to go, and near the end, we haven't covered every single verse. And so a little bit of context on this this passage, what we saw in Isaiah 59, where we were last week, is this picture of God bringing a, a judgment on his people. It seems to them that God is far off, and he says, I'm not far off, but you have not repented of your sin. I must bring a, a consequence, a, a judgment in response to that. And right in the middle, so there's Isaiah 59, and then we get these three chapters in the middle, 60, 61, and 62 that give this picture of the new Jerusalem, a picture of great hope for God's people as they are uh, experiencing in the future the reality that they will go to exile. As that is in their future, God gives them now a picture of hope in the new Zion. So let's turn our attention to God's word together this morning. Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and your salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the days and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest, and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand, And by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies. And foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this rich picture of a wonderful reality that you promise to bring. Lord, as we come to this passage, would you instruct us, would you guide us, would you show us where we need to turn from sin and turn to the holiness that you offer through Christ? Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning, we ask in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. All of you this morning did something that has some bravery baked into it. You got out of bed. That is a small act of of bravery. And one person who knows this well is a woman named Peggy uh, Jones of Silsby, Texas. Maybe you heard her story earlier this this summer. And little old Silsby, this story uh, really went around the world in terms of media coverage. So Peggy Jones is out there uh, mowing her grass one day. 
in July. It's about 8 o'clock at night, and she's, she's mowing the grass with her husband, minding her business, and out of nowhere, a snake falls on her. And there are no trees around, there's nothing, just clear blue sky, and a snake is suddenly on her. And it's sort of coiling around her arm, and as she's frantically trying to get this snake off of her, what happens? A hawk joins the party. And so now this poor woman, elderly woman, is there mowing her grass with a a hawk and a snake, sort of venom and blood and everything is mixed together uh, in this poor woman's story. Now, what did she say? Well, the Silsby B, the paper of record in Silsby, says this, that her quote as she talked to the paper was this, help me, Jesus, please help me, Jesus. And by God's grace, uh, her husband came and they got the snake and the hawk and everything left. The best theory on what happened was that the hawk had caught the snake for his dinner, dropped it, landed on her, and the hawk went to retrieve uh, his, his dinner and did in a matter of, of minutes, but not before inflicting some, some damage on poor Peggy. Uh, later in this article, she says this, I feel it was by God's grace that I'm still alive and able to tell my story. Now, why do I bring that up? Because when Peggy Jones got out of bed back in July, she didn't anticipate that happening, did she? I don't think any of us have maybe quite had an encounter like that. But there's something, I think, that resonates in a, in a narrative like that to say there are some days that we just don't know what is actually going to be coming down the pipeline. We don't know what God has in store. We don't know the difficulties we will experience. We don't know the problems. We don't know the sins that we'll struggle with. We don't know the sins that might be inflicted on us. And Isaiah 62 uses some language to describe this, and it's forsaken and desolate. And so God's people are described here. And there's a variety of reasons that that is the case. They seem to see that God is is distant from them. We know that that's in part because of their, their sin. They haven't repented and turned of their sin. But even beyond that, there's a sense that they look at the life that they are in, the place in history where they are with an exile coming and saying, I don't know exactly how this is all going to work. And so what does God do in the midst of that? As we are in similar situations at times, not knowing what God is going to do, we see this reality. For God's people, they are here. The exile is coming. And what does he do? He gives them this beautiful picture of what is coming. A beautiful picture of a new Zion, a new Jerusalem, a place that they will encounter and experience. And he says, this is what I have for you. So he encourages them to go on and get out of bed and carry on. And so in a similar vein, for you and I, we sit at a different point in redemptive history. We sit at a point where we know the definite forgiveness of Jesus. And yet, here we are, and we've all come from weeks that have been far from perfect. This picture, in a similar way, shows us that this is our true hope. Some things that are said about God here, some things that God brings about, are where we can anchor our hope so much that we can actually get out of bed in the morning with hope, with a degree of confidence that we will not always be desolate, that we will not always be forsaken. So how do we do this? How do we get out of bed? Well, it begins in verse 1 by seeing the light, seeing the light. Now, what happens? We see this speaker interject into this reality where it says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. It's a beautiful picture of somebody stepping into the void and saying, I'm going to do something about this. I'm not going to be silent. I'm not going to be quiet, which is as much to say, I'm not going to just stand idly by. I'm going to go and I'm going to take action in this situation until what? Her righteousness goes forth as brightness. 
you track through the previous couple chapters in the book of Isaiah 56 and 59, you see these moments where God says, my righteousness and my justice are coming. Salvation is coming. There should be righteousness in you. You should be righteous. But they, they haven't been. But now God gives this picture that of something happening so that righteousness will go forth as, as brightness. That all will be as it should. That God will do the thing that he is asking his people to do. Who will this be for? It will be for Zion, for Jerusalem. As we've seen through the book of Isaiah, these are not just sort of geographical locations, but here what is described is this new reality, this group of people, God's people, who will dwell in this place. By extension, he's, he's talking about the church. He's talking about us. He's talking about what he will do for his bride, as it'll say later in this text. If you have faith in Christ today, he is talking about you. He's talking about you and what he will, will do. He will not keep silent. Now, who is, this, who is this speaker? Sometimes it's easy to get lost in Isaiah. You read through, and it says again, now somebody else is speaking. And there, there are some different understandings of, of who is speaking here, although all of it is pointing to what God declares and does, and it seems best to keep the anointed one that we saw in Isaiah 61 as the speaker here. To go back to Isaiah 61, these are the words that we read earlier, the words that Jesus claims for himself. And it seems that even now he is carrying on speaking to Zion, to God's people, and saying this is what will be true. The verses right before the ones we read today, verses 10 and 11, give this picture of a bridegroom who is Christ coming dressed in righteousness. Not that he needs righteousness, but dressed in righteousness for his people. The same righteousness that we see shining forth in its brightness. This wonderful passage carries on in verse 2. As, as the nations look and see the light, or see the light of uh, the, the righteousness, and then there is this glory that they see, God's glory being manifest, that God's people get a new name. The very mouth of God will give a name to us, his bride. We are called a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. This passage just stacks on top of itself again and again these wonderful pictures. A crown of beauty. That's us, That's that, 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 the, the, that God is, is, is holding, so to speak, in his hands, admiring the beauty of his church, the beauty of his people, the beauty of Zion, the new Jerusalem. And then it carries on to maybe the, the very central point of what is described for us here in verses 4 and 5. It's a reversal. The people that were forsaken, the people that were desolate, are no more. The land that was desolate is not termed that anymore. But what happens? But you shall be called my delight is in her. Now, if you, depending on your translation, maybe it says Hepzibah there. If not, it says it at the bottom. And this is a, a Hebrew name that we have a few records of, of people having this name. But here is this reality, this, this reality that God names his people and says, my delight is in you. Now, we read that and say, that's, that's wonderful. I like that. But let's pause and let's just let's, let's sit there just for a moment and think about the, the majesty of this, this reality, what is described here. Now, it might be a little confusing. It's talking about the land being married. Really, what the, the language is doing there is it's comparing the, the restoration of the land that has sometimes been sort of desolate or overrun by enemies being restored and compares that to the faithfulness that God has with his people and says all of it is going to be restored. So the land, in a sense, is not having a, a marriage ceremony, but it's, it's being given a place of belonging. 
The sons of God's people will take up residence and say, this place is good. This new reality is good. I want to stay and be part of this. But it all centralizes on this idea that there is, my delight is in her, this new name. This new name that is so rich, all of this comes through the gift of righteousness that we saw earlier in this. And the next verse here gives this wonderful marriage illustration, this picture of, a, of, of God's relationship with this new Zion being the same as a bridegroom with his wife, of delight, of hope, of joy. There's this overflowing, radiant joy, so shall your God rejoice over you. And this is what God gives to his people. Now, how can this all be true? How can this all make sense? Well, in this reality, remember, there's this forsakenness. And the forsakenness, in a large sense, is our our sin, that we are separated from God because of our sin, by this righteousness that is given, that is removed, and God is restored in his relationship with his people, and so he delights in them. And that's really the outline here, and it's really the outline of the gospel for us as well. As we turn from our sin, as we repent, we move from forsakenness to this standing of being those that God delights in. And that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. And many of us might know that. Many of us, I think, are familiar with the fact that God loves us. Maybe you grew up in the church, and you say, God loves me. That's great. I've I've heard that since before I can remember, but it's become, maybe to you, almost a, a contractual thing. I think some of us think of God's love and say, well, God promises to love me. He loves me, so that's, that's good. He loves me. And, and we move on. Now, it's an unfair understanding of love, but I think God gives us these beautiful pictures like he delights in us to move us just to consider the enormity of what the gospel is about, that God actually delights in you. It's paramount to saying that he actually has affection for you. He likes you. He likes what he created. And in the gospel, what happens is is our sin is covered, our sin is removed, so that that God delights in his creation the way he intended it to be. Now, sometimes we we hear this, and maybe we've been in the church, and we know that we get Christ's righteousness. Call it imputed righteousness, that God's righteousness through Christ is given to us. Christ's righteousness is our own. And so we say something like this, when God sees me, he sees Christ. Now, is that true biblically? Yes. Yes, he sees Christ's righteousness. He sees that. But sometimes what we miss is the fact that he still actually sees us, his creation, and delights in it. Uh, One Christian author recently has put it this way. Kelly Capick, in a book called You're Only Human, wrote this. We feel that God is like a father who is irritated by his kids' friends, but nevertheless lets them play at his house because their presence makes his kid happy. It's an impoverished view of the gospel that sort of just says us, well, we can tag along, but, you know, God, God kind of would rather we're not there. Isaiah 62 pushes back against that and says, God delights in you. God delights in you as he created you with your gifts. Maybe the things that sometimes you say, why did you make me this way? He delights in you. There's hope there. There's beauty there. There's reason, so to speak, to get out of the bed in the morning. Now, you could maybe dismiss this as sort of modern self-interest, navel-gazing, that we have to have sort of a good self-interest in order to get out of bed in the morning. I need to be, we need to be careful with that. Think about who Jesus, or through, through the word, Jesus, who, who he's speaking to. He's speaking to these people, Judah, who really, you know, they're going to go through some significant ups and downs. 
There's a lot of things that might be higher on their um, level of needs, as you might say, if we know Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs, we might say, really, you know, what they need is some stable food sources. Maybe they need, you know, better shelter. They're going to go through exile. There's going to be hunger. There's going to be famine. There's going to be all these things that are really hard. And is God going to address those things? Yes, in his time, he will. But where does he start? In this moment, he points to them the fact that he delights in them. That's significant. That's significant. It speaks not just to a modern sensibility of felt needs, but to something innate, innate in us as humans, as God created us, that he delights in his creation. And he breathes out this new name for us. It comes, verse 2 says, from the very mouth of God, that he declares, my delight is in her. My delight is, is in you. And that's a powerful inoculation against maybe all of the other things that we want to self-identify with so many things that press in on us in our culture to identify with. Whether it's our sexual identity, whether it's our financial identity, whatever those places we might say, this is who I am, the very mouth of God speaks to us and says, no, my delight is, is in you. as sort of the foundational truth of who we are. It's a beautiful picture for us to take and to move us out of bed, as it were, in the morning. So if this is true, if this is the picture that we see of seeing the light moving forward from desolation through Christ to this wonderful reality of being God's beloved, what do we do? Well, verse 6 and 7 give us some instruction. It asks us to keep watch, to keep watch. What does it say? On your walls of Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They are never silent. You who put the Lord to remembrance, take no rest. Now, what does a watchman do? It's kind of an obvious question in some ways. They watch for something. But ordinarily, when we think of a watchman, what are they doing? They're watching for danger. They're watching for the enemy to come. And maybe there's a, a note of that in the text, but primarily what we see these watchmen doing is watching for God to act. It's a different job description. It's looking anticipation, with anticipation for God to do what he said. And in fact, that's what they're called to do. They're called to give God no rest until he establishes Jerusalem, this new reality that is breaking in through Jesus, but we will, we will live in someday. He, it's asking God to, to basically press on and do what he said he would do. Now, where do we see an example of this? There's one beautiful example in the Gospel of Luke. Remember the prophetess Anna? This, 80, this woman who for 87 years has been in the temple? If you look at the text, it, it says very much what Isaiah 62 says, that she has been in there praying for those who were longing for the restoration or the redemption of Jerusalem. The very thing that we anticipate in verse 7 here, until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise to the earth. And what did Anna see? She saw God doing that. As she watched, as she prayed, as she was earnestly asking God to do it, she saw a glimmer of it, more than a glimmer, through Jesus coming and declaring the beginning of the end to sin and desolation and forsakenness. And so what about us? How do we, as we know that God delights in us through the gospel, as we know all of that, how do we begin to keep watch? Maybe one other example of this from church history. Maybe you know a gentleman named Count Zinzendorf. If you don't, it's fun to say, Zinzendorf. Uh, he was a, a, count, a German count uh, in the 1700s. And long story short, he gave some of his land to some Christians who needed refuge, called the Moravians. And so this community was built up around uh, him and on his land. And 
many things happened, but the main thing that happened through this group of people was missions activity, the gospel going forward. And so as these people got together and sort of started living here on Count Zinzendorf's property, they decided we needed a name for our community. And you know what name they chose? The Lord's Watch. Now translated in German, that's something like Hernhut, the Lord's Watch or the Lord's Keep. But the place that they decided to live was named after what we see in verses 6 and 7 here. Very directly, they tied it to this text and said, we are to be those who watch for the Lord's kingdom growth. And you know what they did? Probably know this part of the story, or maybe I've heard it before. In 1727, they started praying, and they prayed for 100 years around the clock that the Lord would move, that the Lord would go forward. They watched, they went, and they said, Lord, we're going to be tireless in our prayer. Now, we could argue about the overliteral taking of a text or whatever, but, but you know what happened? Largely, the modern mission movement had a lot of its, its, gro- its growth and beginning right there. They sent missionaries all over the place. You can read about it. I'm not going to list them all. But they went all over the place, sort of individually. It wasn't sort of a colonial movement. It was sort of going individually as a few people on a ship and saying, there are people in West Africa who don't know Jesus. I'm going to watch. I'm going to keep watch. I'm going to go. And so this passage isn't just talking about sort of all becoming missionaries, but it's talking about sort of taking up the role to say this wonderful kingdom reality that breaks in with Jesus, the care for the poor, the salvation for all people, all of these wonderful truths that we see in Isaiah 61 are the things that we get to go and keep watch for, to pray for. Say, God, would you do this? And the beautiful thing about the motivation here isn't sort of this way where it says we got to do all these things so God delights in us. No, it's ground in God's delight. God delights in you. God delighted in these Moravians who prayed. And so they knew that and went and spread the gospel. Not to earn his favor, but because they knew his favor so deeply and so well. Maybe one very simple way we can do this is to pray the Lord's Prayer. We did it today. How many of us uh, pray the Lord's Prayer? I think sometimes we have a, a faulty view of it that we sort of dismiss it as a, as a children's t- training tool. You've got to learn the prayer at some point in your Christian discipleship, and then you kind of pray grown-up prayers. But the most grown-up prayer there is probably is the Lord's Prayer, to pray it faithfully. And one part of that, I think, intersects well with this, this passage here that says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. This reality that what is true on earth would, in heaven would sort of become a reality. The heaven reality would become true now here is what is the job of these watchmen and us as we pray. To pray that God would do these things. And, and note the boldness of their prayer. I know we've said that before from this pulpit that we should pray with boldness. But, but hear it again. Hear what is said here. That they give God no rest. That sounds a little audacious. Maybe it sounds a little disrespectful. But here we are invited to do that. To say, Lord, would you do what you have promised? I long for it. So that Jerusalem, your people, your city would have its praise on the earth. That you would be recognized for who you are. That's big kingdom prayer. It's beyond the small things that we, we sometimes pray for that are important. And for many of us, I, I know prayer is difficult. Um, getting out of bed in the morning is difficult, let alone praying every morning when you get out of bed. But even that experience, that reality of saying, Lord, I, I've sensed distance between me and you. You don't seem close. You don't seem to, to be the God who says, my delight is in her. That is a prime opportunity to move towards the Lord in prayer. 
Take that experience. Take that place and go to God and pray and say, Lord, would you help me? I don't understand how all this prayer thing works, but would you help me pray? Would you help me pray in line with your kingdom? The Lord's Prayer is a good place to start. There's one more thing that we're asked to do in this passage. Briefly, verses 8 and 9 give us a picture of God's wonderful provision, his promises being fulfilled. Before he asks us to move some stones, to move some rocks, he says that he will do what he has promised. He swears by his own strength, by his arm, that he will do these things, that all the things that have happened, which were curses on God's people because they had disobeyed his covenant back in Deuteronomy 28, all those things will be undone. So that in verse 9, those who harvest eat, and they praise the Lord, knowing that all good things come from him. Those who gather shall drink, and it moves them towards the courts of my sanctuary to the praise with God and fellowship with God. That grounds this instruction that we see in verse 10, to go through, to go through the gates. It's this picture to enter in, to come into this this reality, to, to accept what God has done. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Now, it's sort of an interesting, seemingly mundane thing to do, to move stones, isn't it? If we, re- if we remember, we've seen this probably four or five times so far in the book of Isaiah, this picture of a highway of the Lord, a highway that leads towards Jerusalem. And this is a wonderful picture throughout Scripture, and especially the book of Isaiah, of making straight the paths. We see some of that through John the Baptist, some of that fulfillment. But even broader, there's this call for the people to clear it of stones. This highway is the one that the nations will come down towards Jerusalem that we saw all the way back in Isaiah 2. And so we're asked to engage in it. And as we do that, to lift up a signal over the people. Now, translation might say signal, it might say banner, it might say flag. There are different ways of, of understanding it, but it's this picture of what is right and good and where our hope is. I think most simply, this, this banner that is lifted up is, is Christ. In his inaugurated kingdom, in his new reality, he is the one that we point to. So what does it mean to clear out the stones? I think simply it means to live in light of the new kingdom, to live by its priorities, to do the things that God calls us to do. And that's not talking about maybe the big Moravian 100-day or 100-year prayer. It's talking about the simple things that you know you're supposed to do this week, to love your family, take care of them, to do your job well, to tell people about Jesus. These, these somewhat normal things that God has given to us are part of living in the reality of this new kingdom. And by God's grace, we get to do it, pointing to the wonderful reality that he is, is there. Now, this is not a, maybe you remember the Greek myth, Sisyphus, right, where he's pushing the rock up, and then it comes and it rolls back down. Sometimes life can feel that way. Sometimes it can feel like, okay, we're supposed to move stones, but as soon as we move them, they're right back there. Does it feel that way sometimes? I think there's hope. 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us that our labors are not in vain. That as we build for the kingdom of God, our labors are not in vain. God promises to use what we do for his glory and for the good of his kingdom as it moves forward. So there's a beautiful picture of him sort of redeeming our work, sowing the goodness of it as we rest in this wonderful reality that he delights in us. Where this passage ends in verses 11 and 12, it reminds us another declaration Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with them and his recompense before him. 
It's this picture of God coming, and coming not in a way that is terrifying to his people, but one that is a place of delight because he is the one who gives them their salvation that they long for. They were called the holy people of God. That's what they have been supposed to be doing all throughout the Old Testament. And here he says, this is who you will be because the redeemed of the Lord has done it, has accomplished it. Even as we've ended this sort of with the sermon with these last two points that have really emphasized the fact that there are some things we, we do. We keep watch. We move rocks. We do the work of building for the kingdom. Don't want to leave us with a sense that somehow it's all up to us. The emphasis in this passage is that God is the one who delights in us, has accomplished redemption through Jesus and makes all things new. We can wrap it up with this uh, illustration. Um, our national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner, probably all know it. You can all sing it, right? Um, if you know some of the history behind it, it was written during the War of 1812, and in 1814, uh, Francis Scott Key penned the words. And if you know the story, you know that just before this, Washington had fallen. The White House had been burned by the British. The war was looking bleak. And now the British were moving on to Baltimore, and they were going to bombard Baltimore and take it just as they had taken Washington. And so what stood in their way was Fort McHenry, a battlement uh, fort there in the harbor. And Francis Scott Key was a lawyer and sort of involved in the war effort. And so he had the job to go to the British and see if they could do some prisoner exchange. And so he rode out in his boat to the British the night before they attacked Fort McHenry and had dinner with them and all these things and made some deals. But it turned out that they figured he knew too much. They were going to keep him on the ship overnight before they let him go. And so he had a, a view from a British warship of them bombarding Fort McHenry. And they launched uh, 1,500 shells at this fort overnight, and you know the rest of the story, right? As he sat on that ship, and he kept watch, right? That line in the song, or the ramparts we watched, he still saw the flag. Now, why do I bring that up? Because I think it, it, it in some ways illustrates all that's going on here. There you have little Francis Scott Key doing what he was supposed to be doing, the small little part of the war effort, but when it really came push to shove, did he do anything in that battle? No. He watched. He sat on the deck of the British warship and watched as the battle raged, but that fort stood, and the flag was still there. What does that have to do with Isaiah 62? Well, the good news for us is that regardless of what we do, even if Fort McHenry had fallen and we we're all British subjects, even if all of that had happened, this Isaiah 62 is true. That the signal that is here in verse 10 that is lifted up is one that is never defeated. It is the one that is secure, the one that we have our true and certain hope that we can anchor to. And so if you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear this, that because of Jesus, because of his righteousness, God delights in you. God delights in you. He has given us this sure and certain hope that there is a new Jerusalem that we will take up residence in. And even now, by his grace, because of what Christ has done, we can begin to live in light of it. That we can live with his hope. That we can live and build for this kingdom, all the while knowing that we have a God who delights in us. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us know um, what it is to delight in you? Would you help us know that you delight in us? Lord, if there are those here today who uh, might not really understand what that means. Would you, by the power of your Spirit and your grace, minister to them? Or maybe many of us have heard something like this many times before. Would you impart, by the power of your Spirit, a work in our hearts that begins to 
show us anew and in fresh ways that we can live as if God delights in us, because you do, through Jesus. Lord, would we have courage and boldness to get out of bed in the morning, knowing that your grace is sufficient for us, because you delight in us. We ask in Christ's name, amen.